Hi everyone, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to another episode of Wise Words. Uh, in our last episode, we talked about how a social enterprise could go beyond the spoken and, and written language to educate through experiences and local knowledge and understanding. Now, our next guest helped bring the spoken word back into our everyday lives with the creation of the podcast platform. Alan Greenberg was the director of education from 2004 to 2010 at Apple and was responsible for the deployment of a number of flagship projects in Europe, the Middle East and Asia, most noticeably iTunes University. Those of you who are familiar with iTunes University, it was one of the first platforms that provided higher education institutions with a portal to publish their education content and make it available to users of the iPhone or indeed of iTunes. He also helped support corporate social responsibility programs for Apple in Asia, focused again on learning. Today, Alan supports a project called Wide Academy, which is an education platform that connects innovators, practitioners, and audiences around the stem cell and life sciences industries. The belief that's informing Wide Academy is that knowledge sharing will help produce better health outcomes. So Wide Academy developed the world's first stem cell insurance plan to cover all costs relevant to stem cell research and also treatment with using stem cells. They are planning to expand their reach globally. So please join us as we talk to Alan about increased access to information and technology in the most consumable way. Alan Greenberg, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Um, Alan, before we get into the, the substance of our conversation, which is the role of new technologies in education, I think uh, listeners would be curious to uh, hear a little bit about your story, and in particular how a, a non-technologist got into, into the technology space. Okay, so my background is um, I'm a shopkeeper. When I left school, I went to work in the family business. And I understood the disciplines of retail, of having a store in a good high street, being able to merchandise, being able to talk to customers, making customers happy, and hoping they go away and tell some other people what a good store it is. And I would argue that that discipline has helped me in good stead for many years, and I would argue that discipline is as true today as it ever was. Um, in terms of the journey to technology, um, I was privileged to be one of the first people to get involved in e-commerce. I can remember standing on the stage and talking about that 8% of retail would be done by e-commerce and people were laughing and throwing things at me. And it's interesting to see sort of 20, 30 years later where that stands. And again, first generation of data really. I mean, again, a lot of people talk about AI, but data's been around for many, many years and how that disseminates and how it drives innovation. But the big breakthrough, I suppose, was when I was invited to join Apple. There's a whole story there. You know, the story itself is, is a personal one. I'm very privileged to have a friendship with a gentleman called Pascal Cagney and Pascal Cagney and I've known each other for some 28 years. And Pascal was invited to become the chief executive of Apple Europe. And the big, big breakthrough, I assume, for me, was I was sitting having lunch with Pascal in his house, or that's correct, at Chateau de Manger, because when you are chief executive of Apple, you have chateaus rather than houses. And he said to me, you know, would I like to come and do some work from you at Apple? And I said, okay, that's very interesting, doing what? And he asked me whether I wanted to look at how 
Apple was doing business in education. And it's a very interesting challenge because I knew nothing about education at the point in time. But it was very interesting. And I suppose he was looking for two things. He was looking for fundamentally someone he could trust, someone who could actually look at things objectively and come back with some um, understanding. And he was looking at, looking for someone, I assume, who was reasonably intelligent and wouldn't break everything just to, to make things work. And it was a really interesting challenge. And I went through an interview process, which was quite amusing. I was interviewed by four directors of Apple. There was a thread that went around the four directors and back to Pascal. And basically, I think I got rejected by all four directors. And then Pascal, at the last comment, sort of said, we were back and forth and said, well, if you don't understand, this guy's coming in, you just need to work with him. And then Pascal sent the email to me to give an understanding of what the challenge was I had. And it was a very interesting point because it wasn't particularly pleasing to see that you were not qualified, you're too old, you are all the different reasons why you weren't appropriate. But Pascal wanted me in and, and that was the way it was going to be. And when I went into Apple, the challenge was addressing these people who doubted my capability or actually going out and proving the options. And, and this was around two thousand, just to put people in the time frame. Around two thousand, beginning two thousand four. Yeah. So before the iPhone. Yeah, very yeah. much so. So prehistory, as far as. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, talking about it. I mean, it's yeah, sort of something that's become part of our yeah. everyday life. Um, but I arrived at Apple. Had a credible boss at Apple, direct uh, reporting into a gentleman called Herve Marche. And understanding the challenges, I decided to take myself off out of the office. I mean, having an Apple business card gave me the privilege of basically getting a meeting with anybody I wanted to meet. So as I say, rather than dealing with internal politics within the organization, I decided to literally go out of the office, go and visit vice chancellors of universities, to visit heads of department universities, head teachers in schools. I don't think I ever once talked to them about technology, but I talked to them about what they wanted to do with technology. And there was a theme coming back. Yeah. I mean, literally on a daily, weekly basis, the same thing is that there was this challenge. I mean, again, I would argue that if you're the vice chancellor of university, it's a very lonely place to be. You've got a lot of sycophantic people sitting around wanting to tell you everything's fine, rather than challenging you what needs to happen to change things and make things different. I imagine that's true of any sort of leadership position. Absolutely. But it was interesting to be the catalyst of that change, the opportunity to be able to go and build those relations, those friendships, which many of them I still have today and on a global basis. So I actually understand what their objectives were. And it was to do with having, fundamentally, having a digital engagement with the students. So coming from Apple, we sort of had a good understanding of what bottom-up engagement looked like. We knew what the expectation was of young people coming to school and coming to university. And we were able to, through those conversations, that dialogue, to support the universities to understand what a digital engagement could look like without actually discussing the technology itself. And that led to iTunes, eventually to iTunes. Well, there's, there's a bit in between. I mean, what was pretty interesting is, is that the first assumption that became a fact was that content was key. I mean, there's an argument about where learning goes on. So does learning go on in the classroom? Or does learning go on 23 hours later when you're outside the classroom and you're revising or reading or whatever? So there's a whole theory around actually where learning happens. So the dissemination distribution of content, which is podcasting, among other things, is really very interesting because back in 2004, 2005, it didn't exist. My team at Apple built out podcasting. I mean, there were a group of technical people and business development and marketing people who came together. And I, I'm not sure if you know this, but podcasting evolved out of some partners that you've had. For example, HEC, Business School, mm -hmm. was a major partner and a real catalyst for change, along with the University of Lyon. And it was through those two organizations that the whole podcasting Dissemination of digital files actually came, and I, I was privileged enough. Well, it's a funny story because um, 
So just as I was interrupted, so, so the, the original idea, if I, if I have this correctly, was that this would be an educational tool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the whole, I mean, to my understanding, I mean, there's different versions of the story globally, but I would argue that the Open University has been doing dissemination digital education content now for some 54 years. Yes. So if you really want to give credit where credit's due, that's where it lives. Yeah. But it was Apple's team, and it was, I was very much involved with that team, that was the catalyst to the real change. And I mean, it's, it's a funny story because... Um, somewhere on my laptop, I've got a, a presentation deck where I hauled 12 teachers into the reception room in, in, in Hanover Street in Apple's offices and presenting the podcasting. I remember presenting that this month we had 1,250 downloads of podcast and got a round of applause. Um, last year, I was invited back to Cupertino and I met up with a colleague of mine who runs the, um, the podcasting store. And James turned around and told me, he said, have you any idea how many downloads we have these days? I said, well, it's not in the public domain. And he shared with me it went past 10 billion um, in January of that year. And I actually didn't know how many zeros there were in 10 billion. I had to go to Wikipedia and look <laughs> it up to find out it was... The a British billion. or American billion. Well, it's, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's, just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And when you write the number down and actually look at it, it's extraordinary. And I've been privileged enough to contribute to that number. So it's, it's very exciting. You, but I, I have a question which, which, to which you may or may, may not have the answer, but... It seems to me that, that Apple was a pioneer when it came to iTunes University, but then it didn't sort of take the logical next step, which was <laughs> to actually create, I mean, essentially what Apple did was have, you know, a catalog of, of, of sort of random podcasts to a certain extent for iTunes University. Whereas if you look at what, you know, subsequently Udacity, Coursera, um, and edX have done, is, is take that next step, okay. which is to try and create a sort of proper online university, one that could lead to certain qualifications or degrees. Okay. Or, so, so this is a huge question. So let's break it down to pieces. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, I don't agree with you. So the, historic, the history of iTunes U is something came before that. It's called the Apple Learning Interchange. And the Apple education team, uh, both America and UK, were involved in inviting academics to share their lesson plans into the portal. And again, it's very interesting to look at those slides now because it was all about the meta-tagging of content. So it's about who owned the content and how you shared it and how you could then extrapolate it and then change it. Mm -hmm. So the, the disciplines were evolved by Apple. And I would still argue those disciplines are as critical today as they ever have been. In fact, they're even more important when you actually consider how content is shared. So the Apple Learning Interchange grew. Um, it, it only existed, if I recollect, by for about a year, 18 months, because then off the back of that came iTunes U. And iTunes U had a very specific agenda. We wanted to share the best content from the best universities on a global basis. And I had responsibility for Europe, and I was told to go and get the, the five best universities, but I, I can't count. So I got Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Trinity College, Tottenham, Royal Academy of Music, and a little organization called the Open University. And when I wanted to use the Open University, um, I was told that it wasn't appropriate because they didn't have the brand of Oxford Cambridge mm -hmm. UCI. Yeah. But when I explained to them actually what the Open University yeah, they, they were pioneers. pioneers. And, yeah. and today, I mean, I stand to be corrected, but I believe that the Open University is still the biggest contributor and the most successful distributor of digital content on iTunes, bar none. So it's very interesting how that evolved. Yeah. To come back to the second part of your question, I would argue 
that the focus of I Ching Ju is still highly relevant today. It is very specific to the universities that they partner with. I mean, I don't have a number now. I mean, I assume it's in thousands of universities rather than hundreds in my day. But the point is these universities have a specific agenda, they have specific brands, they have specific criteria. And the fact that you can go to a specific university and share their content, I think is very important. The other piece of it is, if you think about it from an alumni point of view, and, and again, this is why I slightly disagree with the Udemy Coursera scenario, is that if I was looking for rich content, surely the university that I graduated from is the first place I would go. Surely the fact that I can remember the halls I walked down or the, or the university, mm -hmm. I mean, it's that familiarity with the environment, it's that confidence that yeah. you know the culture of that organization, that would be, in my opinion, the first point I would go. So when you look at some of the commercial enterprises, I would argue it's actually different business entirely. So I don't agree with you. I think mm -hmm. I is as valid today as perhaps it's been. Yeah. And I think that doesn't mean it can't evolve. It doesn't mean it can't be better. But I would argue it plays a very, very important role. And, and so if I hear you, I mean, you're saying it plays an important role and it's different from yes. edX. And yes. Yeah. But edX is very interesting <clears> in itself. <throat> I mean, the combination of MIT and Harvard and what they've done is incredible. But I would argue the edX platform itself is very cumbersome. It's actually less intuitive than anything I can think of. But the point of that edX is it's set up as an open environment. So what I admire about edX is that you can go there and use their resources for free. You can build stuff on there. You can actually deliver mobile capability. I and mean, I'm actually using edX for another one of my companies, Wide Academy, mm -hmm. because it's open source and because I can take yeah. it, because I can put the branding on it. So edX has enormous value. But it's not necessarily the best tool. It's not necessarily the best capability. No. So no. there are challenges and yeah. different perspectives on all of this. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, the I mean, some of the challenges you, you confronted rolling out the podcast feature, iTunes University. You know, how, how were you able to overcome, I suppose, instinctive reaction that this is kind of, <laughs> this is an old technology that's kind of being, being revived. I mean, I tend to think of, of podcasts as as essentially radio um, yeah, coming right. back to you know coming back to to life in a different uh, no different but format. but I would argue it's yeah. very interesting I mean we're sitting here doing an audio, audio podcast yeah the distribution possibilities of this particular media is far greater than video and most most technology people will talk in video terms alone but I would argue they're missing a point radio has enormous power and again if you look at the world generally and look at the emerging market specifically. The fact that this file can sit in a very, very small component and be distributed literally all over the world is actually, I think, very interesting. So the, the, the spoken word, I think, has as much relevance today as it ever had. And I think in terms of education terms, I think it is underrated. And again, the research that I read and the conversations I'm involved in and things that I'm engaged with, I would say to you, as exciting as video is in certain sectors, in the education world, it's far, far more relevant. Let me give an example. Mm -hmm. So we talk about AI, for example, and AI is very popular and it's very interesting. So the AI capabilities in audio is extraordinary because you can take this conversation, you can actually transcribe it within seconds, you can apply meta tagging to this conversation, and you can contextually search this conversation by relevance. So do people want to listen to me rattling on for 45 minutes? No, but they might want to find one particular component. So the ability of meta-tagging audio and being able to search it dynamically is hugely powerful. And it's something I'm working on today and using in the medical world, using across stem cell companies. 
it's very, very interesting, and many, many people don't recognize that particular component. So dynamic search, contextual search, and AI is actually a key component of media. Is, is there not a danger that if you, if you go down, too far down that path, that you lose, well, first of all, that you might lose the context. So let, let's take, you know, if they, if they want to get a, a clip, yep. um, you know, of, of a 45-minute conversation. I mean, the, the danger is that they'll pick a clip that is completely devoid of, of context. You know, but that's to do with the quality of the meta tag. So I would say this to you, is that in today's educational environment, do we need textbooks, historically textbooks, which are very expensive and obviously have a timeline in terms of how durable they are, etc. And in a textbook, you're probably not reading it from cover to cover. You're going to go through certain sections yeah. and extract items from that. And of course, you've got more than one textbook. So it's not just one publishing company, it's many publishing companies. So if you think of that in digital terms, the ability to search contextually is far more relevant than searching through traditional library capabilities. The question you're asking, which is a very good one, is that contextual search is only as good as the meta tagging that comes in there. So the hierarchy of that meta tagging, the ability to find authentic and trusted content, the ability to bring that into play. And I'm going to be slightly on the controversial side. Mm -hmm. So if, if you take the example of tests, so Times Educational Supplement, they have one of the largest portals of education sources globally and a community measured in millions. I mean, I, I'm not sure I know the figure, but I think it's eight or nine million teachers globally, could be even bigger than that. But frankly, I'm not a big fan of it because it's measured by the wrong measurements. In other words, just because someone's downloaded a lesson plan three million times doesn't make it a good lesson plan. It just means people download it three million times. The quality control attached to that is one of the most are the best, not necessarily what is the most efficient and what is the greatest teaching. So it's not linked to outcomes. Well, that's exactly my point. I mean, I'm not saying it's not good content, mm -hmm. because anything that improves the learning outcomes of a child or a person is a good thing. But there's very little quality control being applied to that. There's the quality control of the masses. So crowdfunded quality control is not necessarily something I would advocate or need. Come back to iTunes U. When you come to universities like Oxford and Cambridge and Stanford and Harvard, these institutions, there's an expectation that the quality of the learning materials you're receiving is of a pedigree and a standard that is exemplary. And I could be wrong, but that would be my first that's, assumption. That's the assumption that exactly. most people would make, yes. Subsequently, the learning with confidence is there. So as a consumer of content, I would like to be associated to the best brands, I'd like to be associated to the best work, and I think that this ecosystem of volume distribution is not necessarily the most efficient. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair point. I, where, where I was coming from with the taking things out of context was not necessarily from a, from a sort of education standpoint. But, you know, if someone wanted, you know, a clip of Alan Greenberg being critical, for example, of edX. I'm not sure many people would. <laughs> but let's just say they would. But, you know, they could, they could take, you know, your, your, your earlier comments and then, and then use it yeah, devoid of context. I understand. And, and, you know, that, that's what sort of worries me a little bit about the sort of the, this new frontier of, of being able to take snippets of things. No, I, I understand. And, I understand And just that. look at the stuff that, you know. No, I understand that. But I think there's also, want. there's a responsibility. I mean, one of the reasons I'm very proud to be here today and having this conversation is the ability to share some experience. And the point is, it doesn't make me right. I have an opinion. 
No, and, and that opinion is based on experience and based yeah. on the different things I've been involved in. But when I work with young startup companies, mm -hmm. I, I think I mentioned this to you yesterday when we were talking, um, however busy I am, however much I'm involved in things, and I have a very busy life these days, if somebody reaches out to me, I will share a conversation with them. So a young startup, a young person, even an older person, wants to get an insight from Greenberg, I will not say no to a meeting, which is maybe foolish, but it's my... It's my way of giving back. But I do give people a health warning. I said, if you want a conversation, you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an honest answer. Yeah. And that, you know, and then, oh yes, we only want an honest, we want to know what you think. I said, well actually, think about what I just told you. That if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to tell you what I think. And whether that is useful to you, whether because it doesn't make you right, it doesn't make you wrong, it's going to be an opinion. And then it's down to the individual to take that information and to disseminate that into what he or she feels is useful to them and what could be productive for them. But I think that exchange of frankness, I mean, again, I think of my own times in school universities, that if that interaction with the tutor, my, both my kids went to Oxford and Cambridge. They had the ability to have private tuition, because that's how Oxford and Cambridge is taught. Yeah. So you have a lecture, but you do have that interaction with the tutor, and the ability to ask a provocative question and to get a frank answer. It might be quite an uncomfortable answer at mm -hmm. times. But that, for me, is very much what education is and could be and should be, not just not from Cambridge, but should be on a global basis. So I enjoy doing conferences, I enjoy stimulating debate, I sometimes probably go too far in some of the comments I make, but if I can stimulate debate, if I can actually bring something of value, then I feel I'm doing my job. And I repeat again, it doesn't make you right, it just means if you're a catalyst for that debate, if you can stimulate the opportunity, if you can inspire someone, if you can support someone on their learning journey, that generally is a good thing. No, and, and I, you know, I couldn't agree more. Um, to a large extent, Wise exists absolutely as you know to to facilitate these kinds of conversations, and also to draw important distinctions between opinion and fact. One of the, if you allow me, one of the things that I I have been troubled by over the years, and I think technology and in particular social media have blurred the understanding of people between opinion and fact. And, and you, you know, people argue over, over opinions, which I you know, often find to be a somewhat futile exercise. I mean, you can have a debate, you can have a discussion, and it's, it's okay to agree to disagree. But it, it seems to, to me that it's, we're in a sort of winner-take-all environment where if my opinion doesn't prevail, somehow I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the lesser for it. No, okay, so let me... I mean, we've digressed a little no, from, no, our, from no, but our topic. I, no, but I want, I want to try and answer the question, because I, I, I feel very strongly about this. So, I, when I present on this, I, I have three disciplines that I think are critical to education technologies, generally, and healthcare. And the three disciplines is, you need to curate. And curation is very important. So, curation to me is about relevance. So, bring me the web that's relevant to me. Don't bring me stuff I don't need allow me to have the best resource to a curated environment of relevance to my interest and my subject matter. So curation sits very high. That's what podcasting does, that's what mm -hmm. IGG does, that's what other people do less well. Curation sits there very, very high. The second piece, I think, is about assessment. Now, I'm past myself by date, I don't need a university degree, but I do want to be accredited for my learning. In other words, I want the content that's coming to me to be accredited by the best organizations, best brands, best capabilities. So I want accredited content. 
and I may want to be recognized and accredited for my learning of that content. So I stand out in a crowd of people as someone who knows something better than somebody else. And I'll come back to that a little bit in terms of emerging markets and experience in China, if I may. And the third discipline is generally called AI, which is to do with data. And data is very interesting because the ability to qualify and quantify learning and the ability to research, and again, I'm sitting in one of the leading research organizations in the world, and I think it's, and the debate we had yesterday with one of your colleagues, is all about the qualifying and quantifying information so it becomes best practice or an exemplar of best practice. So I think curation, assessment, and AI and data are the three components of what the ecosystem of education and healthcare looks like. Where, where do you put the you're implying quality in the accreditation of assessment. I Correct. Imagine. Well, I'm applying quality everywhere. I mean, I'm, applying, I'm applying quality in curation. I'm definitely applying quality in assessment. And again, I'm applying quality in AI. Now, these are disciplines, but they should be the disciplines that lead innovation. So I would argue, and you mentioned a couple of companies in the previous, in the previous comment just now, I would argue that very few companies who deliver content actually understand the disciplines I just outlined to you. They're looking at public demand. They're looking at, you know, it's mm -hmm. like pop music. I mean, you could be top of the pops, but does that make you a good musician? I would argue possibly not. But there's nothing wrong with being top of the pops, if that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. With education, healthcare is far more serious a subject matter, so I think there should be standards and there should be disciplines. And I'm not convinced that all companies deliver against that criteria. And, and I think, well, I... You find me in, in agreement because I think what you've very nicely um, done with your three points is actually broken down what what I would describe as editorial responsibility and rigor. So if you're going to put up, you know, content, um, you need to, or or if you're going to have a platform that will facilitate people putting up content, there is an implied editorial responsibility okay, there. I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, hopefully a good example. Um, I met Professor Simon Baron Cohen at Cambridge University about two years ago. And Simon has uh, the autism uh, department at Cambridge University. He's one of the top five leaders in this subject matter globally. He has uh, a trust called the Autism Research Trust. And we've built a collaboration. There's a company being launched in the early part of this year called Toolstick, but it's part of that collaboration. And in the process of meeting Simon and listening to his philosophy and his research and his capability, I looked into, or my team looked into, 186 apps for autism that exist. So these are apps that you can buy in the app store, generally. And when we looked at this, we found out that less than 5% of these apps were supported by any academic rigor. Now, I have a big problem with that. So I'm not saying these apps aren't good. But if I'm a family, I mean, I'm not a family with an autistic child, but if I were a family with an autistic child, and I have an app that's being available to me, I sort of hope that someone's done some evaluation on it and some testing on it, that I can use it with confidence. And the fact that 5% of these apps were supported by academic rigor is, for me, a serious problem. And we intend to correct that through Toolstick and the work we're doing together with, with Simon and his team. But that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting um, fact that you've shared. And, and, and we see that, I mean, we see that across the board. Of course. You know whether it's the the news that we consume through through social media, or or as you say, you know some some of the apps that are are, are being put Absolutely. forward as 
you know, offering uh, solutions to problem A, B, or C. How though do you address that? I mean, you're taking sort of a private initiative to address some of that, but at what point will some of the companies that are behind this take on some of that responsibility? I believe by leading by example. So let me give you another example, because it's a really, really important piece of work. So you know that I'm building, um, I'm part of a stem cell, a public company yeah. in the United Kingdom called Bite Cells Group PLC, and I lead a division called Bite Academy. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that. No, but the point is I want to talk about the, the disciplines. So Wide Academy came out of two words, and these words are actually really important. And the two words, the whole principle of Wide Academy is built on the word trust, authenticity. Everything else is built on those functions. And why do I mention that? And the third word is ethics. But I build my academy on trust and authenticity. It's very interesting when you look at companies like DeepMind, for example, and I was privileged to spend some time with Arms Directors recently, they're working on an ethics statement. So all of a sudden, yeah. some of the biggest, I mean, we're not the biggest, but DeepMind is a very significant company, obviously part of Google, there's very serious companies. There's another organization in the UK that I have a relationship with called Cognition X, which is a community of AI and data people. And everyone's looking at the same. Everyone's looking at the words trust, authenticity, and ethics. So say a little bit about authenticity, because it, what, what do you mean by authenticity? Well, okay, so it's slightly controversial. Searching by Google is great, but it's driven by disciplines that are not necessarily the disciplines that suit the academic environment. So a Google search is driven by commercial interest. Mm -hmm. What we're building in Wide Academy is built on dynamic search, contextual search on subject matters, not by an algorithm that's driving what someone commercially is wanting to drive to influence you with. It's being driven by research. It's being driven by authentic content written by academics, studied by academics, approved research mm -hmm. capability. So when you drill down in Wide Academy and you go looking for content, you know you can trust that content because of the disciplines being applied. And that's a very interesting area because in the medical world, certainly, in education, I would say equally, that authenticity is absolutely pivotal and critical yeah. to getting the outcome you want. So it's, it's not, strictly speaking, originality. I mean, no, it's far from it. It could yeah. be exactly, exactly, it could be a piece of research from 20 years ago yeah. that's relevant today. Yeah. That's authentic. Yeah. And again, it can be trusted. I mean, I had a conversation with one of your colleagues literally a few minutes ago who wanted to store her stem cells and was asking some questions of the people she was collaborating with, and they couldn't answer the questions. They just didn't know. There was no point of reference for the information she wanted. And as a consumer of a service, she was entitled to ask those questions. That's what we're disrupting in White Academy, and that's what we're supporting. But the point is not about White Academy, it's about the greater opportunity. I would argue that technology today is about curation, it's about context, it's about relevance. And the power of AI is really interesting because it can drive that relevance and that capability. There's a, a miscomprehension of an organization called IBM Watson. IBM Watson is an extraordinary organization, magnificent, exciting project. And what's interesting about it is it's light of touch. You can actually use IBM Watson for driving AI very cost-effectively. But it's far more relevant and far more valuable than a simple Google search. It's, the references it's bringing to you is really very interesting and dynamic and authentic. Say a little bit more about how, how you see AI playing out in the education space. Okay, well, let's get rid of the fashion statement. I mean, AI is not new. AI has been there always. So dissemination of data is a key component. I mean, in, 
In many ways, it's a challenge because you have to put data points in place. So even finding those data points is the first challenge. And then you have to match data to, to those points and then be able to quantify it. And of course, one of the challenges of the data is who's disseminating that data. So there are some automatic or automated capabilities, but invariably, there's data scientists and data analysts. I have reason to believe that the, the most successful job areas in LinkedIn are to do with data analysts today. I was reading an article on the plane here talking about people who have the ability to disseminate blockchain data and they can earn $140,000 a month. I mean, it sounds extraordinary, but actually, it does make some sort of sense. So the ability to take data and to be able to extrapolate it and work with it. So we're moving into a world where greater amounts of data and the ability to coordinate that data and get outcomes from it is becoming increasingly important. And there are dangers, of course, because if you start with the wrong assumptions and you start with the wrong points, so there needs to be a certain amount of flexibility. But even if you fix a point, there needs to be some sort of flexibility for how you can then change it, evolve it, and deal with it. But it's exciting. It's really exciting. No, I, I mean, I, I share the excitement. I guess I'm, I'm not... Personally, speaking personally, I'm not clear where, you know, I mean, I hear what you're okay, saying in terms of, of, of data being... Simple example. Yeah. When you and I went to school, we started a year, beginning of the year, with a curriculum. Okay, and the first term, first semester, we go to the first semester, we, we take a test. At the end of the second semester, we take another test. At the end of the third semester, we sit an exam, and after that exam, you get a report card. And the report card is then put in an envelope and given to you to take home to your parents. And you pray that the report says something reasonable about your achievements in the last year. And in my case, not so much, but <coughs> other people, they do slightly better than I do. Anyway, that can be changed today. So the ability of being able to report at the point of contact, the ability to actually have a curriculum and to be able to respond in real time to the needs in the classroom. If you take uh, TinyBot, for example, one of the technologies that I'm working on out in New York, the ability to have a STEM education app and the ability to have reporting coming at the point of contact allows a teacher to respond far more efficiently to the needs of the child. And you don't have to wait till the end of the year to find out a child has not done this well, you can deal with it in real time. Now that's a simple example, I would argue, not necessarily being fulfilled as well as it could be today. What I've just told you about, could, we've been able to do that for five, six years. <coughs> and so what's getting in the way? Uh, venture capital. Startups who don't understand what the objectives are. I mean, venture capital is a very complex area because what you're doing with venture capital is you're satisfying the boxes, you're ticking the box of that VC, who he or she thinks they understand what investment looks like and what they will get as a return for their money. Not necessarily what needs to be built to have real impact in the areas they're talking about. I mean, so speaking of venture capital, do you, do you see any, any issue in uh, sort of introducing the Profit motive into, no, into I, education? I, I think profit is absolutely key. I'm a retailer, I'm a shopkeeper. There's nothing wrong. Would you ask a teacher to start a classroom and teach for nothing? That's not fair. You need to pay a salary to that teacher. And the better you pay a teacher, the better quality teacher you're likely to get. It's a commercial enterprise. There's nothing wrong with having commercial businesses in education, none at all. But you need to differentiate between ones that are efficient and deliver a good service, so the return on investment. So having a bad investment in a bad technology is not good. Having an investment in good technology, there's a huge upside. So there's a whole different perspective that needs to be taken here. But it sh there's no problem whatsoever with being commercial. Well, I mean, I, I would argue that, that you know, the benefits of education 
accrue to society as a whole. I mean, they, they clearly accrue to, to individuals, but society as a whole benefits. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, we all have an interest in ensuring that yeah. you know, the, the, the best solutions are applied. Absolutely. And, and again, I would argue that it's an area that where there is, for good reason, significant public investment. Yep. And that, that should continue to be the case, at least in, in, in my view. Yes. Um, but the other side of that comment is that schools don't know what to buy. And even if they know what to buy, they don't know necessarily how to deploy it and use it. So there's a responsibility. And again, without pointing fingers at too many people, I think there's a responsibility for government to put some sort of quality control capability where people are... In the UK, for example, we had JISC. And JISC has changed over the last four or five years. And I don't want to mention names, but there's a lady who was at JISC who drove the innovation uh, part of JISC. And when they were looking for chief executive, she would have been promoted, and she wasn't. Can you, can you share what the, the acronym stands for? Just uh, no. JISC is an organization. It was basically an organization set up by the British government yeah. to evaluate technology <coughs> companies, education technology yeah. companies, to negotiate, let's say, a retail price. Mm -hmm. So negotiate all of them. And having negotiated the price, then all 24,000 schools in the UK could buy that technology, yeah. basically approved by JISC at that price, and know that they were getting value for money. <coughs> okay? And JISC has changed because it is the UK government preferred to support it, it's a charity. Quality people have changed. I don't want to be disrespectful. They still do a good job, but I'm just saying to you, what it did previously was better than what they do now. Mm -hmm. But my argument is that by having an organisation to validate technologies, to find out what best practice looks like, then all of a sudden the school can purchase with far greater confidence than they could do without that capability. Schools do not have the, the no, knowledge right. to make those decisions. No, but that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a good example. Um, where I was coming from is you know, that... It's something you know, that Y should do. So let me well, be provocative <laughs> on that. We'll, we'll take that on. Uh, Thank you. Take that under advisement. Thank you, sir. <laughs> As they say. I think where I, where I was coming from is that, that you know, at least for the, for the longest time, every new technology has, you know, has, has sort of been presented. You know, whether we're talking about radio, television, and now, um, now you know, co computers and now the internet and, and so on. Every new technology has sort of been been presented as some sort of silver bullet for for education. The reality has has turned out, you know, to, to be somewhat different. I mean, Open University is 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 a very good example in the sense that they were able to use, you know, technology uh, like television and the and and the video recorder to um, to, to considerable effect. But you know, they're. To, to, to a certain extent, they're the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, I totally agree. Things didn't fundamentally change. And, you know, the, the, the reality is that television, and again, a big fan of television, I don't want you know, to come across as I'm, I'm sort of anti-television, um, is that we tend to use this, these technologies primarily for entertainment and for um, communication in the form of, of gossip. I mean, that's... And these are features of, no, no, of humankind. So, and the same thing is happening with, with, with the internet. Okay, so there's two or three points there. I mean, first of all, let's just agree learning doesn't just happen in school and university. Agreed. Okay, learning happens from three to 83, and I'm being unkind to 84 year olds. Okay, so education is yeah. ongoing. And mm -hmm. I personally 
have a passion around continued professional development and lifelong learning. And a very early stage, I like the idea of learning how to learn, and I like the idea of continued professional development. So my point is learning is a much broader spectrum than just traditionally schools and universities. Yeah. Okay? And the second point is, or the first point I think is, is worthy of discussion, is that, and I get asked this a lot, it's a book, so where are we? Where are the successes? Well, successes in venture capital terms is the fact that Lynda.com got sold for 1.3 million to LinkedIn. So all of a sudden, there's money in education. I mean, I've always known there's money in education, but until Lynda.com got sold for 1.3, venture capital didn't recognize the value proposition there. WebMD recently got sold for 2 billion, right? Don't Bill, sorry, billion, yeah. 1.2 billion. That's that correct. So that's Lynda.com. <coughs> WebMD got Not sold. Not that 1.3 million isn't a lot of money. No, but yes. seriously, 1.3 billion, that's a serious amount of money. Yeah. WebMD got sold for 2.3 billion, I think about six months ago. So all of a sudden, healthcare education, healthcare knowledge has a value. That's helped me enormously in terms of my work because there's a benchmark now. But I would argue this, and I get this question a lot, is that where are we? I would say that the tip of the iceberg is just breaking through. It's not that we should, I mean, the point is this is an evolving set of circumstances. I've been privileged to be in this space for the better part of 13 years, which is not a huge amount of time. I've seen a huge amount of change. The analogy of the two and a half thousand podcasts and the 10 billion podcasts today, that's, that's a, a journey of 10 years. And it, it, it's evolving as we speak. So I'm saying to you, the opportunities are great, but the disciplines need to be deployed too. So what we've learned is actually that there's things with greater value, there's things that we need to focus on. And my concern is, and I meet a lot of young startup companies, I mentor a number of accelerators and incubators. Um, the knowledge of what you should be building or how you build it is not necessarily flowing the way it could do. So that there's, I mean, again, one mistake that a lot of young companies make is not putting advisors around them. I think advisors are really key to evolving technologies. And again, having a combination of advisors, not just one, but two or three are coming from different areas. That's where experience comes from. I mean, my, my success at Apple was based on the fact that, I mean, why Pascal brought me in wasn't because I was so clever, but he had a, a young team of people. He had 350 people in Apple from HEC, London Business School, INSEAD, Harvard, whatever. I mean, some of the most talented, brightest minds, and they were lacking experience. So Pascal and his wisdom was looking for two or three slightly older people who have been around, had success and failure, who could come in and who, who weren't ageism in reverse. We were there to support these young people, to sit and actually say, well, actually, you might want to look at it in a slightly different way. So the advisor piece and the experience piece is key in my opinion. Maybe I'm selling myself because I'm ancient, but the point of that is it, there's no substitute for experience. And how we bring that ecosystem together is key. How, how do you keep yourself informed and, and and learning? First of all, I, I live a charmed life. Okay, um, I get to travel, I get to work with and meet some of the most inspiring people you could ever imagine. And I feed off their energy, I feed off their passion, I feed off their enthusiasm. I mean, I, I, I'm very, very privileged to be able to do what I do and to be able to do it on a global basis. And I, I could not, and that's my motivation. So where does it come from? It comes from conversations like this, it comes from conversations everywhere. It comes from conversations I had by accident. On the plane out here, I literally sat next to someone that I knew, and we got into a six-hour conversation that I could not have had if I wanted to make a meeting with this person. It was fate. 
But you have to put yourself out there. If you go to a conference, if you go to an event, if you, if you can happen in Starbucks, you have to be open to that conversation and inspired by what goes on. And again, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal thing. I, I, I love what yeah. I do, I enjoy what I do, and that motivates me to do more of it. I mean, it's interesting that you brought up fate, and because and, uh, one of the questions I, uh, I have here for you is, that you know, with AI and contextual searching and all the things that we talked about getting better and better, are we running the risk that at least in the digital space we're going to eliminate serendipity and chance? That's a really good question. Okay, that's a that's a really good question. So my answer to that is again quite a simple one. I think education is about blended capability. It's not about one or the other. I mean, I've had debates with people. Who talked to me? Well, maybe we should close down every school and just have digital environments. That's a bit too radical for me. I, I, I get sort of quite angry in those conversations. But my point is, it's not a case of one or the other. It's a case of bringing the two together. So let me give you another perspective. One of the things that I'm challenged with, and one of the things that's not yet been delivered the way it should be, is the ecosystem of education from a school perspective. You have to engage the school administration. The school administration is there to deliver a good school and to make it work efficiently. So if you don't address the needs of the administration, you're missing a very important component. The second piece is the teachers themselves. And the teaching is all about empowerment. So the administration's responsibility is to find the best teachers and to continually develop them so they can teach the best to the children. And then, of course, you've got the students themselves, and they need to be given an environment where they can learn and excel and fulfill their potential. But the fourth cohort is often forgotten about, which is the parents as mentors. And what is not joined up well today is those four pieces. So you've got kids, your son comes home with his algebra homework, you go to Wikipedia to find something, it's not what he's being taught in the school, dad, you have no idea what you're talking about, there's a confrontation. There is no reason at all why you can't join up that ecosystem. Something else I get very annoyed about is if you take private tuition, $123 billion business on a global basis. So the mum and dad is picking the kids up in their Range Rover and driving them home. The teacher's getting on their moped and following the Range Rover to then pay 40, 50, 80 pounds an hour to teach the same kids he was teaching in the school. And basically, you can't do that in business. <coughs> if you're employed by a, by a school, there's your loyalty. If you're being paid to teach, then you should share that. If I was doing improvising at Apple, I'd been sacked on the spot. And that's a $123 billion business. So the whole system needs to be considered, the processes. But come back to the specific point. Blended is good. Great schools, great teachers, great administration, empowered students, parents who are joined up, and the ability to bring that ecosystem together and continue professional development and learning. And in the professional areas, when you leave university, what have you got there? You've got a certificate that says you can go be interviewed for a job. What do I know about you? Little. I've interviewed you three times, and I know that you went to this university, you've got this degree, you're competent. I don't know who you are. So the onboarding process, how you get someone into, into a business, how you get the best out of them, how you match them up with people who've been sitting behind desks for 10, 12 years and are sitting on resources that need to be shared. There's so many opportunities everywhere to change the education ecosystem. But blended is the key piece. It's not a case of one or the other. It's a case of combining both well. Now, in, in an earlier conversation, Alan, you, you expressed an, sort of an admiration for what's, what's happening in East Asia, and in particular yeah. China. And I mean, China is, is probably the world's biggest education market today. It's also the world's largest tuition market. And I spent some time in 
in, in Singapore, and I know how important education is in, in a sort of East Asian context, and, and how early uh, kids are put on this sort of tuition treadmill. Share your experiences of East Asia, and then let, let's have a discussion about whether that's okay. So let me. That's a sort of good or or, or bad model. No, it's very interesting. So let me share an Apple story. In the summer of two thousand and eight, I was invited by a Cupertino team to work with Foxconn, the factories in yep. Shenzhen, to build an education collaboration. That program is called Seed. S E E D. It's still yep. part of Apple's corporate social responsibility. And the long and short of it was that. Foxconn built seven classrooms, Apple donated 500 iMacs, and we had no content. And we were then reached out, and we ended up with um, N.W. Pearson. I actually met with John Fallon in London, and John opened the door to his team in Asia for content. And we started with something called Longman Learning, which didn't work, and then we had another, I think it was Ellis, we eventually deployed. And the combination of the three organizations came together. So this is a corporate social, social responsibility yeah. project in factories in China. In the first semester, so the pilot program, we had 4,960 students attending these classrooms. So let me give you context to that. These are kids who've just spent 12, 14 hours working the factory floor. They're coming to these classrooms for entertainment or for relaxation. We had 96.5% attendance rates in that practice in the first semesters, which is extraordinary. And we had one-to-one -one learning delivered one-to-many with each student learning at their own pace. I repeat again, one-to-one learning with each student learning at their own pace. In that first cohort, we got 194, 196 students into Chinese universities. So here's an example of young people, factory workers, who want to develop themselves, have an opportunity through a CSL program to learn something and have the appetite to get into a university. I built that with my colleagues. Yeah. I called Tim Mohan was my, my colleague on this. Extraordinary thing. And when you see that, it's, it's remarkable. And just to give you another anecdote and story, which hopefully is relevant, you go into these classrooms, you have 30, 40, 50 kids. They've never seen a European person. In fact, they thought we were American because everyone was American. And they would all very politely sit behind their desks. And we were invited to talk to these students. And whether they understood or not, I'm not entirely sure. But during the conversation, they would get up from their seats and come to where I was standing and sit at your feet and touch you which is really quite unnerving. I was going to say, yeah. It, it's really quite unnerving, and they're touching you. And, and you wonder, well, why are they doing this? And, and sort of I'm looking at my Chinese colleagues, and they're laughing, obviously. And they explain to me afterwards, it's because they don't know that you're real. They understand what you're contributing. They understand what you're bringing to them. They appreciate it, but they want to touch you because they don't know if it's a fantasy or it's a reality. And what I just described to you, when we built the program, I insisted Whenever directors came from both Pearson and Apple, I insisted that the directors went to do what I did in that classroom. And it happened time and time again. And I won't mention who, but one or more directors was in tears. When you understand the power of what you can do through education and the appreciation of helping someone fulfill their potential, and it manifests itself in a physical way, it's extraordinary. And I've been privileged to be involved in that and to see that. No, that's that, that's an interesting story. I, I'm not sure it gets us far in terms of well, the, the um, point the point with China, China is very yeah, simple. Yeah. Okay, I mean, there's the whole novel about you're going to get ripped off with technology. That's called a compliment. If it's good, they want to replicate it. What's the problem with that? But if you think about it logically, 
If you go to China, you go to China with technology and content. So content is much more difficult to plagiarize. So you have to have a strategy, you have to understand where you're going. You need to understand what's going on. So the other piece of that is that again, I mean again, my visit to China when I first went to university, they asked me two questions. Where are you from? And because I was a local direct hire for up in Beijing, I'd say I'm from Beijing. Well, obviously, I'm not from Beijing. And the second question they asked you immediately after is, how long are you here for? Which is very interesting. So if you're the photocopy salesman trying to flog them something, that's no interesting whatsoever. If you're there to support them in their journey and help them achieve their objectives, you have a friend for life. And it comes back to trust. It comes back to authenticity. It comes back to building relationships, fulfilling that. China is one of the most exciting places in the world to work. And the ability to build success there is amazing. And the scale is extraordinary. Opportunity. Yeah. Um, Alan, we're coming up to our, our time, so I'm going to sort of end by asking you the question that I ask all uh, interviewees, okay. which is, if there's one piece of knowledge or one skill that you uh, feel is critical for everyone to have, what would that be? From my own perspective, um, perseverance. I would say to you, perseverance has been a discipline that I live my life by and will continue to live it by. I'm not the cleverest person in the world, I'm not the most intelligent person in the world, but commitment and perseverance and just generally grinding out the challenges, I think is the key component. And I would argue that's a discipline in education, in healthcare, and in life. And it can be taught. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but in some ways it can be taught it can certainly be learned. By, by doing things that people might you know, consider well, um, I, I'm, uninteresting I'm, or, or going against yeah, the sort of... I mean, I agree with you. No, but the thing is, I'm a strange person. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when people say to me, it can't be done, I think that's a challenge. Mm. When people say no, that's actually... What does that actually mean? I, I actually don't... I mean, one of the reasons I've invited you to go to China, and there's many stories there, the fact that I don't understand the word no, I don't understand the word can't, I don't understand. I love a challenge, and I'm one of these idiots who likes to take on these challenges because I like building mm -hmm. stuff, I like making things happen. You know, you know where, I, where I was going is that you know, perseverance requires patience, yeah, um, and it requires delaying gratification oftentimes, and that sort of runs contrary to the sort of you know, always on, always intrigued culture that we, uh, you know, we are promoting um, around the world. And, and, and a lot of it, you know, tied to, to oh. our technologies. <laughs> I can only describe my madness. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alan Greenberg, thank you for being on Wise Words. You're very welcome. Thank you so much.